Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Whether you are a brand or a rights holder, you've no doubt been in situations where a sponsorship has gotten off on the right foot and with all the right intentions, but then one or both parties have struggled to really bring the sponsorship to life and activate it well. It's easy to see how it can happen, especially if there is no explicit conversation about the additional investment that sponsors need to make towards activation, which is obviously over and above the investment of the sponsorship agreement. The big brands often have in-house teams that concentrate on sponsorship, and so this isn't usually too much of a problem. However, there are a number of medium and smaller sized businesses who combined have a significant sponsorship presence right around the world, yet may lack the knowledge and resources to activate their sponsorships well. In fact, they can often expect the rights holder to make it happen for them. It's a shame or even a weakness at times because everybody actually wants the sponsorship to work. Now, one person who, while working on the rights holder side, identified this as a significant issue and gap in the market and decided to strike out on his own in order to address it is Aaron Warburton, Director of the Sponsorship Department, a boutique sponsorship agency based in Sydney. And later on, Aaron joins us to discuss his work and starting his own business, some of the challenges, a lot of the great stuff, and also what he has in store for the sponsorship department for 2018. Aaron is an experienced operator and has lots of great insights. So whether you one day want to strike out on your own or you want some inside perspectives from a rights holder or even a brand side, there is definitely something for everyone in the chat. Welcome to the first episode of 2018, which is episode 51 of Inside Sponsorship. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and as always, it's great to have you choosing to spend some of your valuable time with us to hear from people in the sponsorship industry. Wherever you are in the world, wherever you're listening to us from, it is always great to hear from you, even if it's just to say hi. And someone who did that last week was Christian Robbins, Senior Manager, Corporate Partnerships at True North Sports and Entertainment. And Christian wrote to me on LinkedIn and said, I started listening to the podcast before my interview with True North, the owners of the Winnipeg Jets in the National Hockey League this past summer. I listened to about eight shows over that weekend while working on projects around the house. And I got the job, so it seems to have worked out. And now I'm hooked on the podcast and I'm looking forward to the next show. Very kind words, Christian. Great to hear from you. And congrats on the new job. I mentioned how the podcast may have helped you land that job to Mark and Sam uh, in the office. And since then, they've been arguing about whose advice and insights probably helped you the most. Speaking of Sam, he also joins us on the show because while half the world is freezing in Australia, it's summer and summer means lots of cricket, and a big chunk of that is the Big Bash League, which is Australia's premier T20 competition. Sam watches a lot of it, and he shares with us on the show five things he has learnt from the Big Bash League so far. Now, because it is summer in Australia, that also means lots of holidays, and Sam kindly took some time out of his holiday to join us on the show by phone. And the problem is he's down the south coast of Australia, which is notorious for poor phone reception. So there are a few spots here and there where it's a bit sketchy. Uh, and in particular, one of those spots is where Blair Hughes is given a thank you and a shout out for some of the examples Sam provides. So I just wanted to make sure we got that hat tip in there for Blair Hughes. Here's Sam. Sam Irvine, you're on holidays at the moment. I'm not sure who approved that. So we're doing this on the phone at the moment. Uh, where, where are you? I'm, uh, I'm down in Jervis Bay at Huskisson, actually, beautiful Huskisson, but we're about to get slammed with a big thunderstorm, so mm. I don't know how beautiful it's going to stay. Right, so lots of nice beaches, I suppose. Being a little bit of a runner, you've been up early each and every day running along the, <laughs> the beach with your shirt off, Baywatch style. Is that how your holidays uh, generally play uh, out? I've done one run. Uh, they, you're right, they do usually with your shirt off? a few runs. Definitely no shirt off. It's, uh, <laughs> Christmas hasn't been that kind to me to warrant the shirt off, that's for sure. <laughs> well, the other thing you can do on the beach is play beach cricket. Have you been playing any beach cricket? If only a couple of years away from that, I think, with Harvey. But I used to love it as a youngster, playing a good bit of beach cricket at the um, caravan parks when we go away around Christmas. Yes, it's uh, a lot of fun in the sun and then uh, hit a few balls in the water and, and go for a swim. But the reason I asked about the cricket is 
clearly you've been watching a lot of the Big Bash because your most recent blog is around the five things you've learned from the Big Bash League, and we're going to have a chat about that. Definitely, and I think um, I need, do need to put a little caveat on here. Me, uh, I'm a bit of a cricket fanatic overall, but I'm a little bit of a traditionalist in word that I didn't believe T20 would take off in the I was a bit sceptical, and I was one of those guys that sat back and went, well, we, you know, we've already got two other forms. I don't see the – you're just trying to, you know, turn uh, bring an, bring an AFL-type excitement into a sport that doesn't need it, blah, blah, blah. So I was, I was pretty negative, but I have to admit I have definitely sold, and I am definitely a true believer right now. And so you've written a blog about five things that you've learned – from the Big Bash, and it's, some of it's focused on sponsorship, some of it's focused on product development. And it's, it's for me, it's it's a great time of the year, right, to be able to sit back and, and enjoy sport, enjoy family, a bit of time off, the sun. You know, we're quite lucky down here um, in Australia with, with Christmas being quite a, sort of a nice summery sort of uh, uh, warm feeling for the time of the year. And I, I, uh, I was sitting back watching a couple of games um, around leading right up to Christmas, and I thought, geez, there's so much we can learn from this sport. And I'm sure lots of people have spoken about it in general, but there were five things that really sung true, true to me around what, as a sport, we could understand, as commercial managers, we could learn from, and really what we can learn from, as you say, product development as well in general. And so, one of the, let's kick off, get into those five things. What's the first one? For me, it's been able to, and this is a really basic, right? This is a really basic phenomenon or a basic principle that all sports I guess really try to adhere to but I think the Big Bash has done a better job than most and that's giving the fans what they want right that that old adage um, build it and they will come sort of has really rung true with T20 or Big Bash League in in particular right and I remember the first couple of years because we're up to the seventh season now for the men the third for the women obviously and I think the first couple of years we realised that, uh, well, we, I mean, the Cricket Australia might have realised that this is either, they either need to back it completely or let it die a slow and awkward death. And what <laughs> they did is really put all their eggs in one basket, really put a lot of resources behind those franchises, found the perfect time of year to play the game, and then really gave it the overall resourcing it needed to to explode. It looked at the you know bringing in players from overseas, looked at ensuring that it was big enough to to have a fan base spread across the whole of Australia. Those types of things, but really the fact that the TV viewership's up, the attendance is humongous, and really this this league gets one of the highest attendee per capita records across the whole world. So what we're seeing is a product that actually works in the market space around the timing too. We've seen that leading up to Christmas, throughout Christmas, the new year, there's constantly matches on, people are engaged, we love these little bite-sized chunks of the sport and then we can move on. We don't have to deal with a a, a six-month-long tournament if we don't want to, etc. Yeah, and I think in terms of giving fans what they want, uh, I don't think there's any cricket fan here, particularly in Australia, who thinks that uh, there's too much cricket on at the moment. <laughs> um, there might be some uh, some spouses or there may be some uh, not so much uh, cricket lovers out there who would disagree. But I think, like, a, for example... Hello to my beautiful wife while you mention her. <laughs> I do believe that... Uh, oh, she's not a fan when the Poms are losing. No, she's time, not. Right? She's not happy after a 4 nil series <laughs> defeat. Don't bring up the cricket. But I think the A-League and football really had a nice little spot here for a number of years until what I feel, I guess, the Big Bash have now come in and, and almost stolen their thunder. Um, and and now it's just become something as if you're a sport lover or if you just enjoy sport even just remotely, then it's something you're happy to switch it over to Channel 10 and you're happy to just to watch, have the cricket on the background or actively watch it and really be engaged. But as uh, if there's anyone in your household that doesn't mind a bit of sport, it's going to be on during this whole period. It's going to be on your TV at night. Here, here, more power. So uh, give the fans what they want. That's more cricket give on TV, shorter format in the evenings as well. What's number two? Really, for me, it was identifying that fan engagement can come in many different shapes and sizes. Um, I mean, I haven't been lucky enough to attend a BBL match this season, but from what I've seen on social media, for example, there seems to be some really cool different ways that each franchise is engaging with their fans either at the ground or through digital capacity for those that couldn't be at the game themselves. Now, I think a really good example we've seen here are the Brisbane Heat, and I'm, I'm lucky 
to work with those guys directly. But uh, so I'm a little bit biased towards uh, <laughs> towards those guys. But sort of saw at, at a typical place uh, for this one too was a real big variety of ways you can engage with fans that come from a huge variety of demographics as well they're not just aiming it at your um new adopters or they're not just aiming it at uh your traditional old school cricket fans or even just families it's got the whole package covered they've got really cool family friendly physical activation zones a variety of giveaways that really engage all of their different partners utilizing digital that space there together at the same time really basics like fire might be an old one but they definitely to engage a fan, especially in new catering options. And I don't know about you, Daniel, but when I go to the, the sport nowadays, I don't necessarily have to have a pie every time. I'm oh, no, I have to have a pie. You were different. <laughs> I mean, I'll have that new stuff as well, but I'll have a pie as well. <laughs> it's rude to go to the sport and not have a pie, Sam. Fair, fair. I'll give you that. So, then, so what we're seeing, though, is where they're bringing in or allowing people to try something new and different and making it more of an environment where – you can go and eat something different or you can actually engage in a different type of uh, cuisine as such. And I think plus the, the use of um, virtual reality and augmented reality is really cool and, and key in this space too. So that's where, you know, franchises, for example, like the Brisbane Heat, but others do it really well, particularly the Melbourne-based uh, franchises. I think they're doing such a great job. Let's not forget the pool deck at the, uh, at the Gabba there. That's yes, the pool deck looks amazing. If we could have one of those at every sport in the right time of year, that'd be great. I think. <laughs> I'm not getting in anywhere near a pool outside in the middle of Canberra. Oh, sorry, but in I Canberra mean, in the middle of winter. Better put a spa out. It's it's obviously difficult to replicate all these types of footy club that plays in winter, or if you're you don't have facility at Gavin. What we're saying is that if you can be a little bit creative, if you can look at the different ages or desires of your demographic and understand, right, let's put some resources behind this, let's get some development officers out there making this exciting, and let's try and actually be best in class at this sort of thing too. Let's not follow the crowd. Let's try and set the bar and set the standard. And uh, number three involves the female aspects. Definitely right. I mean, you, you, one could argue that the women's BBL, WBBL, was one of the catalysts for the recent rise in popularity, plus respect given for the female format of a number of sports. So not we're talking about rugby league, rugby union, AFL, etc., and football really too. You could also argue that there are so many other aspects to it that really have helped the rise in, in popularity in, in, in women's sport. But really, Cricket Australia deserves a, cr- a bit of credit for really taking the bull by the horns here, being one of the first sports to actually really jump into this and bring the format, the game day, the player experience and nearly the pay right wages up to that level of the men's in a really, really short fashion. It's only the third season of Women's Bash and already we've seen how quality the game days are when they mesh them in with the men's. Not just a curtain raiser. I think initially, you know, season one, it might have been seen like a little bit of a tokenism, curtain raiser, here you go, girls, play before the boys. Whereas now it's such a quality product that can stand on its own two legs. It can draw its own type of crowd. It can actually engage a different demographic than what the men's BBL might have been able to as well. And what we're seeing is we've got a world-class product here in Australia, really, and if not outdo any other women's cricket uh, competition throughout the world, which is something that we really need to expose a little bit more and actually promote, I think, in this region too. Okay, so we've covered off giving the fans what they want, the fan engagement coming in in many shapes and sizes and not just playing follow the leader but looking at what works for you, Mm. how you can integrate or or augment the the female elements of the sport to make it more of a a total sport, not just boys and girls playing separately. Mm. What's number four? Mm. Number four for me was the franchise model can work. Now, these systems in in the big bash don't have huge historical value to us as Australians. They don't have a long list of premiership, each of them to talk about, or a whole historical list of players that span a long period of time. They're really new teams, and they're not even clubs. Let's be brutally honest. 
true sense of the word club when we're talking about a rugby league club or an AFL club or even a traditional cricket club. These teams are a franchise that have been put together and set up in quite a rushed fashion, but I think it's worked. And when you look at the amount of fans that are really engaged, those guys that are and girls, sorry, that are really passionate about their team, those uh, merchandise sales, the fact that everyone really gets behind, and you see it at a barbecue, you see it at the pool when you're talking to people about the Big Bash. They have their team, and they're really passionate about it. So you don't have to have that huge historical value behind a club, etc. That Cricket Australia have really taken some good steps to ensure that people have bought into this franchise model and that they really understand the value of having two teams in a particular region, for example, Melbourne and Sydney, right? You're able to create these derbies from out of nothing, essentially, and you've really created a what looks from an outsider's perspective quite a viable product that could stand the, the, the test of time. And so those first four, there's, there's five, those first four all sort of culminate into the to number five because if you give the fans what they want and there's great engagement and, and there's the augmentation of the female uh, product element of the sport and it's franchised and it actually works and there's fan engagement uh, and, and loyalty and memberships and, and crowd attendances, it all leads to commercial opportunities but also the opportunity to do some ambush marketing, right? Well, I, I tell you what, if you were a brand that wanted to speak to males or females or kids or parents or families or the older generation, which is pretty much everyone out there, right, <laughs> then you'd be silly not wanting to be involved in the Big Bash because the way that you can, they have shown that they can engage, that you can commercialise certain assets, the way that the broadcasters work quite well, as well with the teams, etc., has, for me, been a shining light of how well partners can work with sport and work with consumers and work with fans. But with great responsibility comes great potential threat too, right? When you look at the potential for other brands that want to get in this space that aren't necessarily the exclusive partners for that industry, then there's always going to be those brands trying to break in in different ways. And ambush marketing is a really good way, or well, good's probably the wrong term, a really a potentially effective way in which we can see um, that, you know, them grab and utilise the popularity of a particular sport. Now, I'm an absolute sucker for over-analyzing the branding, <laughs> advertising, the signing, the partnerships, you name it, whether it's live or on TV. Now, you can just ask my wife, wife Rochelle. She loves it when we sit there watching, watching sport and I start talking about it. I wonder why that, that partner's got that much LED. Just watch the cricket. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, I couldn't really help but sit back and analyze past and present partners, you know, the broadcast partners, etc. For me, a big eye-opener was, um, I'm a Sydney Sixers man, unfortunately, this year, but they, um, they're one of their principal partners was Purina Pet Foods for the first couple of years. And for me, I couldn't initially see the gel or the understanding and the mesh of that relationship. And it wasn't until they actually, when they, uh, you know, announced they were finishing up, that it made sense to me that families own pets. Families who watch Big Bash, families engage with the teams, etc., and that made so much sense for me. So we've got those kind of cool little brands that have identified the opportunity early, gotten in early, understood, utilised this family product and gotten what they needed out of it. We've also got those other brands like your, your KFC, for example, which you can't necessarily get away from this time of year, <laughs> that are going, to be around, are going to be involved, going to utilise really cool activations like the bucket hat, some of their cool TV ads, some of their not-so-cool TV ads. And so what we're seeing is commercial partners be quite savvy, be new, and be spread across different industries. Now, when I sit back and watch it on TV, I can't help but notice the ads that come on in between overs or in between innings there as well. And and I get a little bit protective when, you know, whether one we're talking about a client or we're talking about a sport that I feel quite connected with. And you start to notice when those competing brands from the same industries are starting to sort of nudge in and i think a good example i identified there was ahm are doing some really cool stuff with channel 10 they do in broadcast advertising through uh i think crowd catchers which is a really cool engaging piece of content but first thing i thought of when i saw ahm pop up was hang on traditional partner exclusive partner for cricket australia i, I assume exclusive um they're definitely a uh 
the official partner in the um, in, in health insurance space was Bupa. Now, to see these guys be able to sort of sneak in in this space, another example was with Holden, seeing Holden sort of be um, up on the screen and in watermarked on the bottom left every time Big Bash started. Um, for me, completely contradicted their Cricket Australia's relationship with Toyota. Now, I'm not saying that in any sort of way this is, uh, you know, underhanded or untoward, etc. but for me it just sort of gave a big lesson on what or how can commercial partners work with the rights holders to make sure there's an overall protection or there's an overall surrounding of those products with your brand. Mm, I think, and it is interesting because one of the challenges for the listeners who are overseas, who aren't in Australia where Sam and I are, is that uh, one free-to-air TV station shows all the test matches and the one-dayers, and I think maybe the the international T20 series, uh, but then another competing free-to-air channel uh, plays the or, or has the rights to the uh, the Big Bash league and so that opens up a whole plethora of opportunities for that Mm. broadcaster to work with those brands where people then assume that brands like ahm are actually sponsoring the cricket where in fact they're probably just got a relationship with the broadcaster right and so you watch one morning you'll be watching the test match on channel nine and you'll see an ad for Uber, and that makes sense cool and then that night you'll turn it over to channel 10 as you say and then a, a competing brand's been able to sort of muscle their way in. And hats off to them. They've seen product, they've identified that people are watching it, they've created a relationship with the broadcaster, and now they're really utilising it well. The fact that I'm sitting here talking about them, I guess, has really worked in a way. But, yeah, for me, I guess it really opens up uh, way more opportunities and then probably puts a bit more onus back on the rights holders to start to be a tiny bit more protective where needed. Very good. So lots of lessons and and little case studies and and opportunities for sports right around the world to take a look at what the Big Bash is doing here in Australia. Sam, I know you're on leave, uh, so I appreciate you uh, sneaking off from the family to, to, to spend some time with us to record this little session and uh, and if you'd like good fun talking to you Daniel <laughs> thank you and uh, if you'd like to read uh, Sam's thoughts in detail just head along to sponsor.net forward slash blog where he's uh, provided all those points in detail and because you're on holidays and it's roughly about 2.30 here it must be time for your afternoon sleep yeah you betcha I'm just about to lie down now alright we'll let you go thanks for joining us <laughs> While working at a rights holder, Aaron Warburton identified a significant issue, a gap in the market, and that was being the ability of brands, those without dedicated in-house teams, to activate their sponsorships well. They needed help because it was in everyone's best interest that sponsorships are a success, and that's why he decided to strike out on his own and in 2017 launched the sponsorship department, a boutique sponsorship agency based in Sydney. Aaron has a strong background working at rights holders, including having worked in various departments and at an executive level. And he joins us on the show to share lots of great insights. So whether you one day are thinking you might want to start your own sponsorship consulting business, or you want some inside perspectives from somebody who's worked in a rights holder, or somebody who's dealing with brands that sponsor day in, day out, there is definitely something for everybody in this chat. Here's Aaron. Aaron Warburton, welcome to the show. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it, mate. Thanks for your time. We always kick off with a few easy icebreaker questions just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better, not necessarily sponsorship-related. The first one is, if you could be anyone else in the world for a day, who would you be and why? Oh, good icebreaker. Um, I don't know. I don't tend to think about um, being someone else, but there's, there's obviously some some cool people um, grabbing headlines daily and, and wealth normally has a, a big part of the planet so someone like a um a mark zuckerberg would be pretty cool in, in his 24 hours and he's um he put the wealth aside is working with some pretty cool people um on some pretty big projects that um no doubt will look to to shift and change the world or, or the world that we um we live in today you look at how that brand changed the world in a few years so Hanging, hanging out with the people that make that business tick in particular would be pretty cool. So I'd, I'd say Mark, but um, there'd be five or six I could I could rattle off um, pretty quickly. But uh, 
Yeah, and, and can you keep his bank account at the end of it? That's probably one thing I'd like to, to look into a bit more. <laughs> I will try. I'll, I'll put in a good word for you. So, Aaron, second icebreaker question is, what was your first ever job? My first ever job was my first job out of school and and the job that got me on the path that I'm on now in terms of sports, so the, the Parramatta Eels. I wasn't... Um, I didn't have too much time sort of coming through high school to, to take that, that job after school or job on the weekend. I finished school and, and went straight into the workforce. I was with a traineeship sort of working uh, day a week with an apprenticeship company, but um, deals were in the top 10 teams I supported. You know, Rob, they were um, the guys that gave me my first break when I was, I was 17. I will uh, pass on your name and number to my young fella because despite being nine and being only reasonable at sport, he th- still thinks he's going to be a professional uh, sportsman, move to Melbourne and play AFL. So, right. I'll, um, <laughs> And while we encourage that, we also need to temper it with some reality. So, Aaron, you spoke about um, your, your pathway, or you touched on that word a, a second ago. What has been your pathway leading up to launching the sponsorship department? Yeah, so from, from my time starting in Eels, uh, with the Eels, sorry, in 2002, I spent eight consecutive years there working through a number of roles. And, and my first role, as um, as I alluded to there, out of, out of school, was a it was an assistant role in the membership team, and it, it was pretty broad in the sense that it worked across um, broader administration with the Eels. It was obviously a leaner team back in 2002, where I sort of helped out in PR and media. But day to day, it was it was looking after their membership. Activity and, and still remember um, being in the twos and three thousands when it came to membership numbers. So that is going back a, a fair way. And we were, you felt like you almost had personal relationships with a lot of them, knowing that um, the numbers were so so low. But I think you go back to 2002 and three, and membership just wasn't what it was today when it comes to to rugby league. You were a season ticket holder, and you didn't really get too many other benefits associated with so. A part of the growth of, of the yield and membership program, um, initially over the first couple of years when I was in that role, and and as I said, I was there for eight years. So I sort of moved into to a marketing um, coordinator role for two years, sort of 2005 and six, and then moved into the corporate sales team um, for the final three or four years, which saw me wrap up at the yields at the end of 2009 after the grand final loss, and. Funny enough, looked at a couple of opportunities around moving into um, another team or club. Um, but then there was a big part of me that potentially after eight years and, and being the only thing that I knew for that time was to, to get out of sport altogether. So I ended up taking a role with Coca-Cola. And it was a, um, a big change from being a front-facing um, person within a business and you know, selling sponsorships and having a... Um, a list of clients as long as my arm where I could sort of get out and about, whereas the, the role at Coca-Cola I took was, was exciting, but it was very, um, it was sort of back-end, um, working with the, the 130 or so sales reps. I was, I was, I was their marketing resource um, to an extent, but it was very much um, the opposite of what I was doing. So it was six or so months there with Coca-Cola that saw me look at some opportunities back within sport. And a role that I actually knocked back in 2010, end of 2009, was with the Bulldogs. Um, and being six months, I'd obviously filled that role to the point where I called back and I spoke to, to the guys there and obviously they'd filled it. And it took them a few weeks, but they built a role in the, in the sales team. So the rest is history when it came to that. I sort of worked my way through, um, um, you know, general corporate sales and hospitality and then after eight years with the Bulldogs, sort of worked my way up to head the division um, and the commercial partnerships team and, and running with a team of, of seven full-time staff members. So it's sort of, it's been a, a, a long career in sport, being 15, almost 15 consecutive NRL seasons with a little um, a little um, hiatus in the middle, jumping out to the, the big bad world of, of Coca-Cola and corporate. And that leads us to you from the Bulldogs launching the sponsorship department, your current business. What made you decide to start the sponsorship department? It was uh, it was one of those burning desires. It was um, it was something that I always wanted to do. I didn't know it was going to be the sponsorship department, so to speak. But um, I wrapped up at the Bulldogs in June 2017. 
2017. So I've been out for now six or seven months, and um, about nine months prior to that, I made it um, somewhat public within the Bulldogs, in particular to the executive team, that it was a goal of mine to actually launch my own business and that um, it was very likely that it was going to be in, in um, you know, my bread and butter from a sponsorship perspective. And it was at the same time that I was wrapping up my studies and my MBA that um, saw me and, and allowed me to develop a, um, a business model at the same time. So as I said, I was very transparent to the to, the, to Raylene um, and, and Vince in particular at the Bulldogs, the two sort of top dogs there, pardon the pun, but um, it, it was um, an easy transition into the business. So they were um, working with me on my way out of the business over that nine-month period, which, um, to be honest, the, the, the reason um, and, and my current list of clients at the moment are, some guys I was working with over a number of years and to be honest they were the ones that um, identified the gap in the market that, that the sponsorship department fills and that's um, sponsors and then there's a number of them that are spending a lot of money in sport and don't have the internal resources to um, to bring that sponsorship to life so as I said like most businesses are going to identify gap and try and fill it and be that, that problem solver in the market and mine was it was a, it was an easy transition, and I don't try to make it sound um, like it was a flippant decision, but it was a an easy one where I could move straight into working with two brands in particular that I knew were spending a lot of money and to spend a little bit more to actually start um, leveraging and activating it and and, um, and kicking some early goals was um, was going to be a win win for, for both parties. You spoke, you touched on your clients just then. Can you provide a bit of an outline of, of some of those clients that you work with um, and yeah. how you actually work to help them and, as you mentioned, bring those sponsorships to life to activate them? Yeah, definitely. So the, the two um, clients I launched with, um, uh, M&J Chickens and Wicked Sister Desserts, and both of them are obviously in the, in the food industries but, but both completely opposite ends in, in the sense that M&J Chickens is a is a B2B business in the food services industry, so someone who supports pubs, clubs, restaurants, um, aged care facilities, um, and everything in between, basically not the end consumer. And on the other side of the fence, you've got Wicked Sister Desserts, who are a um, very retail-heavy brand, both sponsors of the Bulldog. So um, hence where the, um, the transparency was imperative from when I, I sort of launched the idea to, to launching the business was that... To, to jump on the other side of the fence with both of the brands that I'd sort of worked with for, for multiple years was um, was was only going to benefit the business and therefore the club. So if if these two brands in particular were going to continue along the ways of, of really only being able to identify how many eyeballs were, were hitting their brand from a sponsor perspective, that it probably wasn't going to be um, an infinity-type relationship where there was going to become a time where both businesses would look at the sponsorships and say, you know what, this it's just a, it, it isn't um, one making sales for us or two you know, servicing clients, whatever it was, it just wasn't aligning to their business objectives. So those two sponsors in the first six months, we, all we did was we were spending two days a week just completely aligning um, or identifying the business objectives that um, the sponsorships weren't um, achieving and, and literally doing that. So. If you would ask any business owner, what are your top three business objectives, they could tell you pretty quickly. Um, but what I was finding early on that what they were doing when it came to sponsorship was just completely opposite. They want brand awareness when it comes to sponsorship. And, and as I said, that's probably one thing most of them were, were getting, being a, an apparel partner, but um, nothing else was, was clicking. So that's been the focus. Um, and some key wins there early on allowed me to... Um, to continually pitch my business to a few more sponsors um, or partners, and, and towards the back end of 17, I picked up uh, Opal Solar, who are the current major partners of Cronulla Sharks, and Waterview at Bicentennial Park, who sponsor the, the Wanderers and the Bulldogs. So it's a keep everything nice and close to, to, to me at the moment when it comes to what I know and, and what I've done, because it's um, yeah, obviously it's a no-brainer for me to work to my strengths, but um, Broadening the list moving forward is, is going to be important too. Is it just keeping with the simple analogy of, of identifying uh, 
fans who are currently sponsoring and are just not happy with the results. It's as simple as that. Aaron, you spoke about uh, initially spending some time with M&J Chickens and Wicked Desserts, going through those sponsorship agreements and, and rejigging them and, and, and realigning them. Was that an unusual or maybe even an uncomfortable situation considering that you would have been heavily involved selling those sponsorship uh, agreements to those two sponsors when you're at the Bulldogs and maybe now a year, two years, whatever it was down the road, they're not really aligned? Was that an uncomfortable situation to almost, putting it quite crudely, almost going in and and, and redoing some of that work? I, I hear what you're saying and the interesting thing is most people... Um, from a rugby league perspective that signed these deals have all the, the best intentions at the time of signing and, and more often than not they're the CEOs or the managing directors or people that are sort of either working with a lean workforce internally and as I said their intentions are there but the minute they sign that, that, that contract and everything from a club perspective starts being put in place and it's all also looking good and on track these guys built their businesses because they're very good at running their businesses and we get it. For example, we can assist the desserts who is about seven years old, very, very good at identifying gaps in the market when it comes to new flavours and desserts and, and, and trends overseas and, and that's what makes the business tick. That's what makes the balance sheet at the end of the year look look um, impressive and, and the fact that sponsorship obviously makes up a part of the marketing mix. A lot of these guys are running very sponsorship heavy marketing activity. So if if um you looked at M and J Chicken's activity a few years ago and they've changed somewhat now is the fact that it was a hundred percent sponsorship driven. So they weren't taking any other um forms of marketing um under their belt. So it allowed the CEO and, and some other executive team to tick it off and, and go from there. But what I've been able to do is say you can continue doing this and you'll get those results. So from um customers coming up to them saying, wow, I saw your, your brand at the footy or thanks for those tickets last week. You, you can continue going on like that. But what I've been able to do is say you, you can, you know, by allocating a resource, and lots of brands are like this and it's fortunate to have a sponsorship team in turn. I know Kia, um, who I brought on a couple of years back at the Bulldogs, were, um, they're a sponsorship company. They, they get it. They're, they're directives from the top down are that we sponsor. So therefore, they know that they need to put internal resources and uh, to be honest, a bit of that sort of stemmed from Kia. They were one of the um, few that would, would have a sponsorship manager who the Bulldogs could work with at all times and, and you know, sit down and say, these are the things we need to achieve. Everyone was on the same same page and, and we got in there and, and did it. So it's um, it's it's that gap of, I've identified that if I didn't do it now, I feel like um, it would continue only to the detriment, as I said, of, of the brand and the club which would be very unfortunate. So, Aaron, you're in a unique position where you worked internally at the Bulldogs, so you had really good understanding. You worked with those sponsors already. You had relationships when you came out and you wanted to help realign those sponsorships for those sponsors. What are some of those really underutilised or offered or even position benefits that rights holders often have but probably don't think brands would be that interested in when, in fact, they would. It would actually really help them achieve some of their objectives. Yeah. Being, obviously, working with the Bulldogs and, and the Eagles prior, you sort of get an understanding of, you know, if you line up all the contracts that are in place, you know, what benefits are actually being utilised across the, the board. And there's obviously a number that aren't and there's a number of partners that tend to go a little bit above and beyond and and that's accepted from time to time. So, Knowing that um, there are certain pressures on clubs, um, not that I, you know, I'm using that to my advantage where I saw, you know, some partners not using things, so I know that um, there's certain benefits that are just sitting there waiting to go. But it's the it's the IP rights that ultimately puts the the uh, the onus back on the brand, and you know, obviously being a, a key partner of a club, you tend to have a number of IP rights to to be associated with them and. And that's where it sort of stops because ultimately you're buying the right to, to engage a, a group of fans and and if you're not adding value to that group of fans and you're simply saying, you know, we're the official so-and-so of that brand, you can you can look at that and be happy with it and think that's great. But ultimately um, what I'm finding, in, in particular the last six months, is the ability to 
directly target fans, uh, whether that be social media and, and literally looking at um, groups of, of fans on on club pages or you know, not so much on club pages, just trying to find them based on their behaviours and what have you, is that if you associate yourself with the, the club, then that's the first first hurdle. Um, and that normally comes with throwing a lot of money towards the club, but it's it's the strategic direction you take after that. So how do you want to be perceived uh, to that group of fans? And are you trying to actually bring them on to be your fan? Um, and I, f- I feel like that's being underutilised along with a number of other things, but if you're not um, front-facing to the, to the group of fans that you're sponsoring through that club, then um, I think you're missing a big opportunity. And that's what I'm trying to do with, with my four clients in particular is that, yeah, there might be um, um, a, a time in the next 12 months where fans need to consider um, the category that these guys are in, whether it's, it's solar or whether it's a function space uh, for a wedding or a party that... Um, if we're not um, understanding that group of fans and we're simply throwing a logo and saying this is what we do, then then we're missing the mark. So I think that's the key. I think you can um, you can have 10, 20 lists of benefits in a contract, but um, if you're not leveraging the fact that um, you're the good guys and you're here to, to add value to the fan experience, then, um, then uh, yeah, it's just going to work. Yeah, I think it's a, a definitely... A uh, an insightful comment because uh, particularly around sports clubs and, and sports sponsorship, it, it largely revolves around that tribalism, that that sense of belonging and you're aligning your brand through saying, you know, we're the official partner of or supplier of and, and that goes a long way with fans, doesn't it? Sure does. When you're working on behalf of a client and you're liaising with a rights holder, how do you go about ensuring the sponsorship is is activated well? You spoke about it earlier on in this chat, where you said bring those sponsorships to life. Are you is your role to get your hands you know nice and dirty? Is it more about tactical advice, strategical advice? Are you the point of contact between the sponsor and the rights holder? Is it all of the above? Is it whatever the sponsor needs? How do you actually go yeah, about I, making it happen? Yeah, so I'm the first point of contact. So what I've, the main goal there was to initially take away. Um, all the day-to-day activity of, of the sponsorship from whether it be the, the head of marketing or the, the managing director or the CEO to take all the, the nitty-gritty away, but to ultimately keep them involved from a strategic direction so they still have a, a sense of ownership over the, the partnership. Um, what I've tried to do particularly with the current partnerships that are in, in place is, is, is just get in there nice and early and explain my role um, how it's only going to benefit by, by um, allowing the, the brands to change a little bit of their direction and in particular, um, you know, renegotiating some of the, the benefits within the contracts that um, are mutually beneficial once again, that um, they're going to sit there unused and um, go to waste or if they're going to sit there and, and you know, not align to those business objectives that we spoke about and that um, once again, not go to waste. So the early question was just getting in there and, and understanding um, the key um, people within the, the, the clubs, uh, seeing what strengths and weaknesses they had and who they currently work with, so um, directly aligning potentially some new business opportunities for, for my client. But it's, it's been six months or so and we're, we're leading into a big season in the next few months. So we, um, we now uh, know that there's, there's going to be last-minute issues that arrive come March, but um, we're pretty comfortable in the sense that we got in nice and early and we've... Um, we're very clear in communicating um, what our objectives are, and and in some instances, waiting to hear back from a few of the clubs about some some cool concepts that we are starting to hear about uh, how things can be a little bit different this year, and and hopefully start things pretty quick. In that that relationship, managing those relationships between the sponsors and the rights holders. I'm guessing it can be a bit of a balancing act in that brands are engaging you, like you said earlier, because they don't necessarily have those internal resources. They're engaging you to help ensure their sponsorships are a success. And so there could, from time to time, be a little bit of, well, the sponsorship department will sort it out. But in fact, you would still need a lot of engagement and ownership from the brand in order to be successful. How do you actually communicate that and manage that with clients ongoing. Yeah, it's it's for now it's it's um it's manageable because I've got four clients and you think about it, we're just working week of five or six days and 
and I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that I, I do get a fair amount of one-on-one time with, with the brands. So um, it's, it's new to them, you've got to think, in the sense that they've, they've been sponsoring um, some of them for MJ Chickens for almost 20 years. And, and they've, been, they've been happy with it. Obviously, it's been um, a good ride for them. But this is um, a, a really good opportunity for them now to, to, to communicate to me what they want, um, but then allow me to, to do the legwork. So... Um, it's, it all comes down to maximising their investment. Like any investment, if you um, if you're happy with it and it's giving you good returns, there's, there's opportunities to increase investments to other opportunities. In particular, M and J work with um, three NRL teams um, and some other sort of second tier partnerships across the country, and are looking at some um, some some new partnerships. There's been a recent um, agreement with the Wanderers, so it's things that um, that if, you, if works and you can easily replicate it um, as long as the resources sort of on both sides of the fence allow you to grow at that same rate then um, then it, it's good but going back to the sense that it, it's invaluable that I do get to spend um, a bit of time with me, um, knowing that uh, if, if um, you know I double my client base it's, um, it's going to be um, evident that I'll need support but it, for, for now it's it's working I'm, I'm feeling like I'm a really good bridging gap between brands and the, and the clubs and sponsorships and in, in every evolving uh, practice slash profession and you said before about how people are coming to you with ideas and some cool concepts that they've seen around activations are always really high profile and they're well shared by the audience on on social media etc can you tell us about one of your favorite activations either one you've helped execute either at Parramatta or the Bulldogs or with your current clients or yeah. just one you've you've seen others do what was it and why was it so great yeah the, there's always and they're getting better definitely the, the, the NRL grand final was a good um good example of that there was plenty happening in the sense of brands bringing their brands to life but um once I've been involved with as I said before the guys at Kia just got it from what they do at the Australian Open um, and keeping it simple, getting getting fans inside their car, getting um, um, potential customers to consider their brand when they may not have done so in the past by literally getting getting them in there and seeing the, the new digital dash to all the bells and whistles that comes on the new care stinger, for example, to 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 being um, you know what understanding some of the bugbears that the Bulldogs had being engaging family, so they developed uh, the care carnival which um, is a play on words, obviously, with their, their people mover, but it was a, an engagement space outside the main entrance of the, the Bulldogs games where they had sort of almost 10 pieces of activity from jumping castles to goal-kicking challenges to photo opportunities with Bulldogs legends and just giving a real family carnival atmosphere. Um, going back again to the, the adding value part, if, if that wasn't there on that day, there might be a few people that may not have come back to their, their second game of rugby league, whereas... On the flip side, maybe that was the thing they were speaking about on the on the way home to mum and dad to, to make sure they got back to the next game. Um, one of the craziest and biggest uh, activations I was involved with uh, were the guys at ED Forex in, I think it was 2012-13, where they ran a worldwide competition. They were the bottom back of Jersey sponsor of the Bulldogs at the time. And they... Uh, they ran a worldwide trading competition where they had about 50,000 entrants and it was simple. It was the the highest percentage um, of profits based on only the two-week period of just trading any commodity you thought you, you needed to trade. So if it was the US dollar versus the, the pound or sugar versus the US dollar, whatever it was, you just had to make the highest percentage. And, and a guy by the name of Swami who lived about 600K... <laughs> Um, out of Mumbai in India, won the competition. So they, they flew him out. They did not know what rugby union was, let alone rugby league, um, and had the chance to kick for a million dollars at the uh, halftime point. I think it was the Bulldogs Penrith game at the time, and he got to kick from 20 out, 30 out, and 40 out, and kick all three consecutive uh, kicks. And they covered the whole thing. So from him getting on the plane, he, he worked with his parents' news agents and landing in Sydney and having a kicking... Um, lesson with Hazamel Mazaru in the in the days leading up, it was horrible. Let me add, um, <laughs> but he, he he just thought, you know what? Even though he kicked zero from twenty at Belmore in his training run, he um, he still thought he was in with a chance. But he had 
fireworks when he ran on the field. He was kitted out in the Bulldogs jersey, and actually he was kitted out in the full kit. He had Hazard there as his motivating factor, which didn't help too much, and um, he sprayed everyone. I think he, he didn't get past the twenty million one, to be honest. But it was it wasn't that. It was the fact that someone from rural India won a competition for a Bulldogs game through a worldwide trading platform, and um, he had every, had people from head office in Europe fly over and. It was cool. So it was it was a good example of someone getting in early and identifying. Um, you know, their goal I think was only to bring on. I think it was fifty to sixty new accounts. So that was the the ROI they knew they had to make based on um, traders' investments. And it was cool because it wasn't um, it wasn't a traditional rugby league sponsorship, in my opinion. That, that someone from a, an FX company came on and said, "We want to tap into the high net worth individuals in a in a code." So they needed to make it big, and it needed to be bigger than, than just the Bulldogs. So that was that was probably a standout, and and still I think gets spoken about in the Bulldogs office as the um, the Golden Swami Award. <laughs> Thinking back to when you worked on the rights holder side at the Bulldogs, what is something that you know now because you've worked on the other side with brands that you wish you knew when you were working at the Bulldogs? Yeah, good question. You think about it from a sales team's perspective, and the 16 sales units across all the NRL clubs, they're all in it for the same thing. They're trying to attract, um, you know, like-minded brands, big brands, people that, that want to invest in their club. And and the one thing I'm seeing now being on the other side is it's it's all to do, aside from if there's a misalignment, but, but timing is the key. And, and, you know, back to the sales meeting on Monday morning, you'd be talking about pipeline and who's in the pipeline and who's, up to the second meeting and where the where the current deal at, and sometimes these things take take years. They um they can be they can be lucky and, and get done in a week or so. But for the the right brand to be um, groomed essentially to 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 understand what the club's benefits, it could take months and and up to to twelve months and beyond. But you know you you just got to you've just got to identify that you know who, who's your top ten who. who if you could pull one from these guys, who would it be? And and just get working on it because at M and J Chickens and 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 the guys that I'm working with, they're getting approached all the time. So if we're not in the position to take on a sponsorship, then it's just going to be a thanks for for coming. And you know we've we've allocated our budget. Whereas I was getting those letters continually at the Bulldogs because you sort of just got to keep keep at it if you're um if you're being a little choosy and a little picky, then potentially the results aren't going to be there. And like I said, you'll hit. You'll hit gold every now and again, and someone will say, "You know what? I do want to sponsor, and I do have some allocated one-use budget." Um, but it's if perspective, it's just it's just not um, it's not efficient, and that's what I'm seeing from the other side is that there's a, a lot of um, competition in Sydney in particular, um, and um, yeah, if, if it's missed by a week or, or six months, and it's just not going to work. But if you can get timing and that, and it comes to you know not necessarily having to sign the deal this year. It might be around there's some really good opportunities in a club in the next five years and, and you talk through the vision and the strategy as opposed to there's a competition kicking off in three months and um, we want you to be part of it. As I said, it might work, but um, yeah, I, I, if I'm having the conversations now and, and the teams approaching saying, you know, there's some really good opportunities in 2019, then you know, well, I'm probably not going to say no to them right now. I'm going, to, I'm going to listen to what they've got to say and I'm going to talk to them through that process. And what about the flip side? What about agencies and, and sponsors, brands? What's something that you now realise that maybe they didn't have the best understanding of, that maybe you thought that they did from a rights holder's point of mm-hmm. view, that that could really help them if they understood it better? Yeah, it's... You know what? The, the, each club is going to be different. They're going to have a lot of similarities and and um, and share them. To be honest, There's, there was a lot of um, cross communication between the Sydney clubs in particular. I knew that, but every one of them are resourced differently. And understanding the internal capabilities, resources of those clubs is important because um, it's okay if you're happy to pick up. Or um, and I'll, I say that respectfully that some of these teams don't have big sales forces or big sponsorship servicing teams. Uh, that's the world. I'm finding out that um, you know, we're working with the likes of Penrith and Canberra, uh, along with the Bulldogs at M&J Chickens, but it's it's about the, the, the broader team. And if you've got access to, to head of marketing or if it's a league club contact, uh, it all adds value. Whereas 
I was probably a little close-minded early on my time at the docks where we were, we're a big sales team. So we were like, you know, there's a, at any one time you can speak to, um, you know, A, B and C. But when you think about it, and definitely from this side of the fence now, is that if I can go to a meeting with a, uh, a head of commercial, but I can also understand who, who heads their community team and who is going to be the one that works for um, the next big story. So if it's the head of PR or communication, their valuable resources and talent within that business. So if you can sort of look at that and say, well, like a, going back all the way to the first question about the, who could I be for a day in Zuckerberg, the, the sense is you're not going to be the best at everything, but if you've got a, a gun team around you that can sort of pick up the slack and say, well, you know what, these are my contacts in the media world, um, you are never going to tap into that if you just continually work with the head of commercial. You're going to probably get some really good business introductions and, and that was going to hit that objective. But if if a PR strategy was part of the objectives, then you are going to have some content about that business um, with all the heads and all the brains. And studying your own business is challenging, but it's highly rewarding. But like I said, it is challenging. What were some of those challenges you've faced or, or dealt with over the last sort of year or so? Yeah, and that's the thing. So starting off, you took back to the day one, it was all exciting and it was haggard this and it was gathering information from my clients and just every day coming up with ideas and concepts of how we're going to do that. But a few weeks in, it didn't take long, it was just the the um, inability to to pass on and delegate was, was, the, was the number one challenge. So it was at the dogs, we had seven. Uh, if I'd come back from a meeting, I could sort of sit down with the team and say, I need presentations done, I need some numbers run. That's a, that's a challenge, but you know what? It's uh, All it's doing is a few more hours a day. And if you look at it in that perspective, I, I sort of didn't think it would be a Monday 9 to 5. So um, from you know, accounting software and making sure my invoices are out and, and everything like that, they're, they're challenges and you know, self-doubt comes into it. There's, there's no time there that you sort of think, shit, what does, what does next year have for the sponsorship department and what does what does the year after have so it's just those little things that everyone will have in their own little you know, just managing time and and, uh, and the, the activity within the day starting your own business is hard work you have to wear many hats and one thing that sometimes probably more often than not falls by the wayside is that personal development element because there is no HR department or senior manager helping you with your development, how do you personally keep up to date and current on what's happening in the sponsorship industry? Yeah, it's it's um, it's extremely fast paced, as you'd be aware. So it's um, yeah, you know, to study is one thing, and to get a, a broader business um, acumen to your to your repertoire is is important. There's there's nothing better than, than industry intel. So I'm. Funny enough, the first thing that I paid for out of my own pocket was a um, the power sponsorship um, uh, conference with Kim. Um, I think it was June, July, as I was wrapping up. But I, I literally took the um, the right side of perspective. So I'd done a number of those those courses in the past, and they were all funded by the Bulldogs because they were they were rights holders. But now being on the other side, I thought I had to brush up a little bit on the, the agency world. So that was a, a good start. It gave me some really good key learnings and notes to, to take with me and um, and just day-to-day research on on um, LinkedIn, seeing what's happening, new trends. Um, the guys at Sponsorship News uh, are, are good to be a part of and I was, I was privileged to have that for a number of years at the Bulldogs, so I've got to make that decision now. Um, as to, does that continue? And it, it, it probably does because it's it's information and, and if you can consume X amount per day without losing it, then it might as well be something that um, is going to benefit the business and therefore make make more money down the long run. And no doubt with it being the new year, so if you're listening to this podcast maybe uh, a a couple of years later or a couple of months later, it's (laughs) January 2018, so Aaron, no doubt with it being a new year, you have some plans and goals for how you'd like to evolve the sponsorship department in 2018. Can you share some of those with us? Yeah, definitely. The, the the number one goal is to is to smash it out of the park with my four clients. So there's there's nothing that I'm foreseeing um, that will stop me doing that. From you know number one, working with some really good teams, um, water bases. So I think we can align um, their activity 
with their objectives a, a lot a lot more efficiently this year, which is is only going to lead to some to some key wins. And I'm definitely looking to expand on top of that. So if I can bring on a fifth and sixth, seventh, eighth, I don't know where to stop, but I think um, only time will tell me what um, what my capacity is uh, before bringing someone else on because brands and and being able to make sure that the um, the industry as a whole can um, can learn from from efficient sponsorships and that's probably the key is to to, to look at these guys and say well you're currently spending you, you might as well give it a really good crack and that's that's in a chill what 2000 look like it's that time of the year january crystal ball time i'm going to put you on the spot where people are making predictions about their industry social media particularly linkedin is, is flooded with my predictions for for this industry mm. in 2018 no one ever actually goes back a year and checks whether these people were right so you're safe i think is there any area that you think will will really grow or mature or even an area that the sponsorship industry will stop focusing on so much maybe a trend or a real focus yeah the, the one thing I'm seeing, it's been gathering for, for a couple of years, is just being able to to quantify your sponsorship. The, the go-to for me, um, being at a rights-holder perspective and now on brand side, is, is still the digital element and how underutilised um, it is. And not that utilising it means just throwing more advertising up on a, a team's website or or running a competition, but it's just, it goes back to that adding value part. And ultimately, if you're going to add value, that you're probably going to be more likely to, to gather. Uh, if you think about it, if, obviously, that if you're ever going to give data over to someone, it's someone that you probably trust. And that's the, the number one goal of, of sponsorship activities, to get a group of people to trust you and your brand. And I'm still finding that there's nothing more the digital opportunity and, and that's across social and electric and websites but it's it's um it's it's still being underutilized and and my four clients are, are all focusing on it so they're, they're knowing that if they can start owning their own data uh, and it remains their own um, ip for forever and a day that that's valuable and it's it's really really easy to do with, with the right support and and i use um um, not exclusively, but I use quite frequently the guys at Green Room and some of their strategies um, because, it, it, again, it's me getting that off my desk, getting it tuned and, and brought back and then presented to my clients in the, in the sense that it's a, it's a solution. If you've got that in your, your contract and you've got ability to, to target a group of fans and it's, it's, um, it's a digital package or whatever, it is an opportunity to start owning some data. And it's another step after that as to what you do with the data, the, the do you talk to them and communicate them on a frequent basis? Do you just target them through Facebook activity? Whatever you do, um, you can work that out later if you need to. you just got to get data. Aaron, if people want to get in touch with you, connect on social, etc., what can they do? Uh, LinkedIn is a platform I just I seek information. I don't sort of communicate too, too frequently on it. Maybe that will change in 2008. But LinkedIn, it's, it's a great platform. It allows everything to stay above board from a, a professional perspective and um, it's got one key um, uh, purpose in my opinion and that's just to connect more people you need to, to network and um, and leverage other relationships so if if you can find me on there and you want to reach out happy to, to, to keep a conversation going after this podcast and of course we'll provide a link to Aaron's profile in the show notes at sponsor.net Aaron Warburton director Thank you so much for taking us inside your experiences at the sponsorship department. Absolute pleasure, Daniel. Appreciate it. It was a really wide-ranging and insightful chat with Aaron, and thanks to him again for spending some time with us in his busy schedule. If you'd like to connect with Aaron, just visit thesponsorshipdepartment.com.au or search for Aaron Warburton, that's W-A-R-B-U-R-T-O-N, on LinkedIn, or head along to sponsor.net and head to the podcast section where there's links to his LinkedIn profile, the website, and his Twitter profile. That's about all we have time for in episode 51. Don't forget, if you want to read through Sam's blog about the five things he's learnt from the Big Bash League in detail, then just head along to sponsor.net. 
www.danielloyston.net. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston, maybe get in contact, and uh, we can give you a shout-out on the show. You can also drop me an email using daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at sponserve. And if you want to connect with Sam Irvine, you can email him on sam at sponserve.net or find him on LinkedIn as well. Don't forget, you can also follow Sponserve on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Obviously, just search for Sponserve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs, and resources, head to Sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. LinkedIn.